Okay, folks, welcome back to Unstandardized English. My name is JPB Gerald. This is a podcast where we seek justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. And if you don't know what that means, keep listening because it'll all be clear. I come to you from unceded Muncie Lenape slash Canarsie territory, which you better know as Queens, New York. Okay, so there's a lot of stuff going on in the world of Justin. I said my name is JPD Gerald. My name is Justin, whatever. Um, before we get into that, got to thank a new patron or two. I have Ina Crooley, who is my classmate. Thank you. And Robin Broshi, who is also uh, someone who's known me for a while, at least through Twitter. And anyone who's interested in contributing to the podcast, um, there is a Patreon link in the show description. And I appreciate any and all donations. One thing I should mention, though, is I changed my tiers. If you donate above a certain amount, you will get a discounted copy of my book when it comes out. You have to keep donating. You have to donate throughout the summer. You can't just donate once. It's not going to work. Um, you get a discounted copy of my book. And if you donate above another amount, which if you go on Patreon, you'll see what the amounts are, then you will be able to um, get a free copy of my book. A free copy of my book. So uh, getting a free copy of my book should be an incentive. I don't know. Speaking of my book, there's a lot going on here. Um, since I recorded an episode, and to be clear, I record all these very early, so it is March 6th as I record this, and you're going to hear this as of April 18th, so still six weeks from now. But um, I got my book back from the reviewers a few weeks ago, and I didn't want to look at the reviews. The, the editor said they were very positive. But I still figured I'd have a lot, a lot to do. So I knew I was doing my dissertation editing. And I said, I can't, I can't look at this right now. I can't do my time. Um, but just out of curiosity, because I'm nosy, I looked at them. And they're very short. I said, I can do this. And I went through and just edited my book, you know, pretty extensively. I didn't change this. The, the thing I was concerned about is that my book has a unique structure. And for those of you who don't know, the book is called Antisocial Language Teaching. English and the pervasive pathology of whiteness. They might take the pervasive out, but whatever. It includes antisocial language teaching, English pathology, and whiteness. Um, the point, and I'll, you'll hear about this as we get closer to the book, because I'm going to talk about it a lot, um, is to counter-pathologize whiteness, because the centering of whiteness in language teaching has rendered the industry callous, corrupt, and cruel, and it actually matches the diagnostic criteria for antisocial personality disorder. Why antisocial? Because the word antisocial has been thrown around to just mean people who are like soulless, serial killer types. That doesn't mean that's what antisocial personality disorder is, but people say these these thugs were antisocial, that sort of thing. Um, so I'm just sort of using it to show that whiteness itself is um, antisocial by the definition of antisocial personality disorder. This might seem like I'm stigmatizing the disorder. It's not. The point is that the criteria are arbitrary and harmful, and we need to be very skeptical when you think about the way that uh, the society has deemed who is pathological and who isn't. Really, it's to move away from pathologizing people altogether. That's what the book is about. Anyway, um, I edited the book really fast. I sent it back to them. Now, I probably have a couple of copy edit type things to do, and I have to make an index over the summer. Um, but it's pretty much done. The book was supposed to come out in the summer of 2023, but I finished the first manuscript in August, five months early, and I finished the edit in a few weeks. And so it's coming out most likely, unless there's a snafu, in September, which is nine months early. So that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool, which means, yes, you're going to hear about the book a lot as we get close to it, especially over the summer. Speaking of the summer, in previous years, um, I had sort of ended the season around Memorial Day and taken the summer off. But now that this show is growing a little bit in terms of viewers, since I joined the Connected Podcast Network, and you should all listen to the Connected show, there's my plug. Um, I don't want to take the summer off and lose listeners. I may take a couple of weeks off. So there's probably only going to be one episode a month in July, in June and July. Um, and in between, I'll re-release old episodes for new new listeners. But I'm not going to take the whole summer off this year. Just in case you're wondering, you will soon, still soon get the yearly episode with my wife, and you will still get the season recap episode where I go through all the episodes. But it's not going to just end like previous years, because 
I'm not, I'm gonna have more time. Even if I do get a new job, which I'm looking for, um, I am not gonna be in school because I am finishing up my dissertation. Now I've talked about it on previous episodes, what I wrote about, so you can listen to that. It's not that interesting to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, I knew when I started the doctoral program that I did not have the patience to be in it for like seven, eight, nine years. That's not an insult to people who take a long time because frankly, I they do a lot of great work, but I knew I don't I don't have I don't have the patience. I knew that there were three years of classes, and I knew that it was then at that point up to me how long it took. And it, it will have taken me one year since I finished classes because I have no patience. I made sure that my study was a very practical one in the sense that I already had the, the contact info of the sample. I emailed them and some of them said yes and some of them said no or didn't respond. Um, and then I interviewed them. The thing that took the longest was getting IRB sorted. And IRB didn't even take me that long. There was a snafu in the system. I keep using the word snafu. And it took an extra month. But once they actually looked at my application, it only took them like three, like a week. So, yeah. Anyway, it's actually pretty short. Um, a lot of dissertations are super, super long. I don't get it. I don't have a very complex study. It's very short. Um, and I used to think that was bad, but I realized like the best dissertations have done one and mine's almost done. I will be defending. By the time you hear this, I will be on the precipice of defending. Um, and if I succeed in my defense, which they will not schedule unless they think I will succeed, then here's the thing I didn't know. They're going to let me walk. So if I don't fall on my face in these next few weeks, which I guess is possible, but it hasn't happened yet, uh, they're going to let me walk at graduation this year. And I did not expect that to happen. I figured because technically after the defense, I probably have to do some minor revisions and then I have to turn that into like official system and I have a couple of months to do that. And technically they don't add doctor to my name until September 1st. Um, I figured I wouldn't be able to walk till next year, but they said I could provided that I don't fall on my face here. So that's pretty cool. So that's the Justin update. You're going to hear a lot more about the uh, book throughout the spring and summer. And I'm probably going to do a special episode after I do finish and or graduate um, and talk about my overall experience. Just want to tie off. I had those three episodes about my experience there, and I just want to talk about just doctoral programs in general. Maybe I'll bring my chair on or something like that. Um, so that'll happen at some point. That's probably the last I'm going to bring up my, my dissertation. It's not going to get, it's not interesting. Um, but I did manage to do it and a book at the same time while working full time. That's not me bragging. I think that's just when the ADHD is going well, then the A is not A D. <laughs> when the hyperfocus is hyperfocus, it's hyperfocus. Anyway, to this week's episode, um, I am speaking to someone whose work I admire a lot, which I've cited a few times. And, um, and she's a friend of a friend, but I also liked her work before I knew her. Um, she is, I don't want to pronounce this wrong. Um, her name is Johanna Enserkananen. I believe that that is the right way to pronounce it. I will confirm this with her in a second. She's Finnish professor and she is in the language space, but she's also talked a lot about whiteness. Now, you know, I have a lot of episodes where I interview white scholars about whiteness, not because I think they're the experts, but because I kind of want to grill them a little bit, you know? But what I find interesting about her perspective is that she's Finnish. I mean, and not just of descent, like she lives in Finland and she's written about that experience as a, you know, an ESOL teacher, right? Someone who's an English speaker and, and um, English user or whatever in a place where almost everybody is white. Not everybody, but almost everybody. And um, it's just an interesting perspective that she has because we mostly, I mostly hear about this from an American or a Canadian perspective, even a British perspective. I had one woman from Ireland, so I'm sort of knocking off all these different white countries, right? But I really think it'll be interesting to hear from her perspective and the work that she's done on accents, language, English, etc. So I hope that you enjoy the episode. Again, the Patreon link is in the description and let's move on to it. All right, so welcome, folks. Oh, that's loud on the 
audio, but uh, we are here with, I'm going to get it right, Johanna and Sir Kananen. Is that, did I get it? Is that? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. All right. And uh, we're going to talk about some interesting things from her perspective. Before we get into that, I'm just going to let her introduce herself. So if you wouldn't mind. I mean, that is why. Um, you know that's why. Um, <laughs> uh, th there's a lot to unpack here, and we could go through some of the pieces specifically, but then I don't always like to do that because then if the people haven't read the pieces, they don't know what we're talking about. Um, but what I found interesting is that you sort of have had a few different tracks in your, in your, I guess, last couple of years of writing, you know? You've had the pieces where you're really looking at sort of, like I said, racial engagement ideologies, you know, accents and so forth. And you've done that from your perspective or you're in your colleague's perspective, but not specifically about Finland, right? Um, right. And then you've also, you have the one piece that's, and probably some others, I just haven't read all of them, that is more from your perspective directly, like as being, you know, in, within your identity in Finland. So sort of want to talk about those two different things, you know, maybe I'll start with how did you get sort of interested in, 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 in sort of looking from, because I, I expect that you were not trained in this sort of racial linguistic stuff because it didn't really come out until however many years ago. So how did that, you know, catch your eye? Um, and then we can talk a little bit about the sort of understanding of race and, and whiteness in Finland and Scandinavia in general afterwards. Well, it's really interesting that you asked me this question this week, you know, because somehow the way I got into this, kind of, I was reminded of that um, now through the war in Ukraine. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, when I wrote my dissertation, I was actually uh, following two uh, multilingual high school students in their school, daily school life, and um, trying to understand what being multilingual means and how they enact those identities. And um, they were, I would say they identified as white. Um, I think they were also often identified as white by others, but somehow something seemed a bit off in how they were identified as white. Maybe knowing what I know now, I would say they were like identified as white, white in the periphery of whiteness, you know? So because they had this European heritage, um, they were not considered at the core of whiteness. Um, and that alone, like, I feel like this is a topic that keeps coming up now when we discuss about refugees from Ukraine, how are they treated so differently than refugees from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, a couple years ago, right? So I feel like I'm reminded of these same questions again now, knowing uh, I have other tools now to deal with this, to, to give language to this phenomena, but, but somehow the questions essentially have stayed the same. But that's how I started to think, hmm, well, multilingual uh, life as a student in high school, really, uh, you can't really talk about that unless you understand racialization. And, and, and of course, race is always co-constructed with other things, other identities, such as class, gender, um, also nationality, um, um, sexual orientation was less of a topic in my, in my studies back then, but, but there's a lot of other different uh, um, things that popped up. And so that's how I first started to think about it. Okay, something is interesting here. Like, they are kind of seen as white, but not really. <laughs> they didn't fit in, and yeah, so that's how it first started. 
couldn't have been that long ago, but um, everything feels like a long time ago with the pandemic, right? You know, um, and I mean, so say sort of the same thing that happened to me because I've said this a many times on the podcast by now for people who are listening, like, oh my god, he's going to do it again. I'm not going to tell the story again. But the point is, like, these things happen. You look at one thing and then something doesn't feel right, and you're like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. frankly, I think that any scholar who starts from point A and goes straight to point Z, it's probably bad work. <laughs> like, because that means they're just ignoring, they're like, I don't care, I'm ignoring things, you know, um, because all these things come in, right? Um, and I do, I really want to talk about racialization in Finland because I don't know anything about it. Uh, and I've sort of unintentionally been going on this, like, tour of whiteness around the world for, for the people on the podcast have been obviously a lot of them American but I'm Canadians and British people as an Irish person um, and then there's some places that I've been where I would like to have those people on the podcast but I, I understand from having li- I've, I've been in France like I've, I've lived in Asia you know like I've been in a couple of places where I understand it personally and I can sort of speak to it obviously as a black person rather than a white person but um What's interesting about Scandinavia, and I know Finland is not like, they're not all the same, but I mean, the way that these places are seen, the United States, especially for certain people, especially on the left, these are seen as like the panacea of society, right? Like this is the place that we must, we must emulate. And they don't have these problems over there, right? You know, they, everyone is treated perfectly in Scandinavia and we need to look to Scandinavia. There's this book I read called The Smartest Kids in the World and it's mostly about Finland. Um, it's not just about Finland, but like a big part of the case study was, was in Finland. First of all, like when I read that book is before I got any of the critical stuff. I bought it because I was interested. And now I look back and I'm like, huh, that's kind of a bad title. But <laughs> so I actually criticized the book in a chapter I wrote, which... You know, anyway, but it's just sort of seen as like, if we could just get the world to be like Scandinavia, then all of the problems will go away. And as far as I understand, because you are, in fact, humans, that is not true. So if you could tell me a little bit, obviously speaking, you know, more from a sort of racial aspect, but uh, just in general, like, uh, is it is Scandinavia and Finland in particular perfect? as part of Scandinavia, but like the Nordic states, let's talk about the Nordic. So like, so um, yeah, I want to disappoint those who actually believe that, that like, and it's kind of one of my favorite things to, to kind of bust that <laughs> of the amazing Finnish education system and the uh, super smart kids. No, our kids are not smarter than other kids now. I think there are some things that uh, this is, the school system is doing well, uh, but I would maybe argue that they have very little to do with um, what you would maybe call pedagogical stuff. But there's a few things that I, I, I honestly, also as a mom of three and as a, as a former teacher and teacher educator, that are really stand behind, like a free lunch for everybody. I think that's great. Um, or outdoor time, regular outdoor time for all the kids. I love that. But I think this um, discourse of Finnish excellence in education has also done us a great disservice because uh, I think a lot of reforms, a lot of change hasn't happened and a lot of um, things we haven't seen because we have kind of believed in this and also marketed it, right? Like this is also a marketing strategy, like schools and uh, curricula and, and then Finnish, um, like a lot of people benefit from that kind of uh, image and from uh, benefit financially, I mean, and of course, also in other ways. So, so we have also um, marketed that and um, sold that and gotten people to believe in that. But I think it has done us a disservice in the sense that we have uh, not been self-critical enough in some ways. And I, it feels, by the way, a bit strange because I'm actually not a so-called native orphan. I'm actually from Austria, but I am, uh, so in some sense, I'm a migrant as well. But I, I do. That do use me here now because I do live here and I work here and I think that's only fair. Um, so, so yeah, so this uh, discourse of excellence is a problem. I think one thing um, that it has led to is uh, systemic color evasiveness. 
So because everything's going well, why would we have to talk about really uncomfortable things like race? <laughs> you know, like if we're doing so well, look at our, all our test scores. By the way, really test scores, let's pause for a second and think about what do we really say about whom and how limited is actually the thing you can say about learning and education from very specific test scores. But anyway, we know that. But um, anyway, I think so, for example, in terms of color evasiveness, culturally sustaining uh, education, linguistically sustaining education, there's just a lot of times we have turned uh, a blind eye on difficult, complex issues because we were kind of so sure that we're so excellent. And so I think that's a problem. It, re it reminds me, um, because another place, and it's, it's not just the United States, but it's particularly the United States and Western Europe, you know, the OECD, you know what I mean, um, you know, the, the countries that think that they're better than the other countries. Um, and, you know, they compare themselves amongst themselves, and they say, we're number 20 out of 20 or whatever, right? Um, and the top of the list is often like Finland and like East Asia. Right, these countries in South Korea and Japan, particularly. And I had heard this before I went to teach in South Korea, and so I went there. And the thing you notice is just like you said, this is the same kids, <laughs> right? Like the teenagers is, you know, I was a high school teacher, but like you know, this this is not that different. I mean, obviously the culture is different, language is different, people are different, but but I mean, like in the sense of like the brain is doing the same thing the brain is doing at the same times, you know, um, and. What I realize is that like they probably are doing really well on the tests, but like and, and I can speak only to my experiences because like if the United States thinks that our testing system is really bad, and it is, but it's it's a global testing system. Like it's not just us. This is not to excuse the way we do things, it's just that we're not the only ones. Um, and part of the reason that it 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 it's you know other countries do really well on the test is because a lot of the time you're being so focused on the test that of course you can do well on something that's all you do. Because in, in South Korea when when the SAT came around or the Korean SAT came around, they stopped traffic. Like they like they sent it to for so that everyone so it's like the only thing that matters, you know? And so in, in the United States it's very important, but it's like they're not stopping traffic for you to take the SAT. Like you're just getting on the subway or driving over there or whatever. Right? So yeah, the people who have, and yes, you don't have to be rich to prepare for the test in certain places, which is good, I guess, if the test is that important, you know. So yes, it is easier for people of different income levels to prepare for the test, and therefore the country generally does better on the test. But what is the test measuring other than preparation for the test? Right. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a circle. Right? They're saying, like, how well did you prepare for this thing? Well, you did well on this thing you prepared for. Let's make it easier for you to prepare for this thing. It's like, well, what is the test measuring? You know? And, 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 and you know, although I can get really post-structuralist and say there shouldn't be any assessments at all, like, the problem isn't the existence of age, of testing per se. It's that it's standardized. It's what is it actually measuring? Who designed it? Like, it's, it's, because when you start with that, people say, well, you don't think there should be anything? And it's like, that's not what I said. Okay, <laughs> I, you know, I, what I'm saying is, is we need to take a step back and think about it. Because, right, right, like, I don't know, what is the preparation for these tests? Like, how is that built into the, the pedagogy in Finland, at least? Well, that's also where I would say that Finland has done really well in keeping schools relatively free of these high-stakes standardized tests. And the PISA, I, it's sometimes called the PISA test. But it's actually, uh, you, could, you might as well call it a research study. <laughs> or like, so it's not, um, yeah. So in Finland, there is not like, for example, an entrance test into a school. I mean, those come later in life when you want to enter college, for example. But typically, your uh, career as a, what you would maybe call K-12 student uh, in the U.S., uh, is not uh, dominated by testing or uh, teaching to the test, which or any or, or things like that. Typically not. So that's that's um, I find that relatively uh, positive. Um, that being said, I think there are mm, mechanisms in place that do similar things where they that of selecting students, um, 
I think it might not be a high-stakes standardized test, but it might be something else. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the same or very similar mechanisms of um, marginalization and uh, power exist, but they work differently, they work in different ways. And maybe you might say they are more subtle, I don't know, I think it depends what you're used to. <laughs> but they definitely exist. Sorry, I was trying to unmute myself. Uh, yeah, so, so it's interesting to me. So let's get, I guess, sort of more into to, to sort of Finland and sort of who's there. Because, like, when I think of, I mean, you can tell me if this is true in Finland or not. But when I think of countries that are seen as, and to some extent are, what we would see as racially homogenous for the most part, and I'm not saying everybody, but I mean, it's like the vast majority of people, right? From the outside seem that way. I think a lot of the time there's obviously going to be stratification, but it tends to be based around other things. And therefore they find it easier not to talk about color. Like you said, you know, those, you know, we talk about nationality, we talk about language, talk about this, uh, but it's, it's, it's the same thing. Uh, they're just using different avenues to get at. They just might have the same skin tone to some extent. So, like, from what aside from people who migrants, which is a whole other thing, which yeah, but I mean, like, uh, within you know, I don't want to say native Finlanders because then that wouldn't describe you, right? But um, you know, the Finnish culture there, like, how does racialization work? Uh, again, aside from the sad anti-blackness that accompanies every African migrant who goes everywhere. So, um, so we could start with the question like, are Finns white? So, um, um, well, of course, you can't ever answer that um, in a very general sense. But, but just to, to give you a little uh, history, um, so Finns have not actually, uh, or, or what you maybe now think of when you see a Finn, you see a white person. When you think Finn, maybe a lot of people would think of a white, blonde, white person. I don't know. I think that interesting thing is right. But I think... I think um, like a figure skater or something. You know, like an <laughs> Olympic winter athlete is what I think. I think skiing... Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I think. So watched a lot of Olympics? Well, it was my son likes to watch sports. He's two, so I just... We don't, I don't really care about the Olympics, but it was on for two weeks, so... Yeah, it was. So, so I, get, I get why you would think that. Okay, but the thing is that uh, things actually... Um, are, were not always perceived as that. They were actually perceived in, in the 19th century, for example, they were perceived as uh, people of Mongol heritage. So they were actually more uh, in the Asian box, if you want to talk about boxes, right? So for example, we know from research uh, that, um, for example, in Minnesota, where I actually got my uh, PhD, by the way, so hello there, Minnesota, um, there were cases where people with Finnish heritage were being paid less in mining companies because they were not, or they, people wanted to pay them less because they were not considered uh, white. So um, actually Kivistö and Leinonen have written about this uh, and others too, but it's really interesting how Finnish whiteness was then very intentionally constructed because Finns uh, uh, didn't want to be perceived as Asian, they didn't then, or then, so whiteness is always or often or mostly constructed in opposition to something, right? So I don't want to be Asian, I don't want to be Russian, I don't want to be Eastern European. So so what can we do as a nation to appear white, to be, appear European, to appear educated, to appear sophisticated, or the same things have been operating for, for a long time and, and they haven't, yeah, they have maybe changed their ways, but the general intention I think is the same. So. So I think, um, and I think there are populations in, in the U.S. that have gone through the same history, where they weren't always perceived as white, but now they would be, uh, to some degree, um, speaking now in a very general level. Of course, that's not always true for for um, every individual person. But so I think what is, for example, very uh, interesting also in the context that we are in now is like how things. Um, become white as in opposition to Eastern Europeans or Russians, right? So, um, and then of course, how they have constructed their whiteness in opposition to the racialized other of like Sami people, 
Romani people, Russian migrants, as I already said. So those were then uh, the people of color that um, got also perceived this this way, right? So the question is not like, not so much to me at least, um, are, are who is white, but who gets to be white or who is being constructed or constructs themselves as white, which point why and in opposition to who or in opposition to what. So that's, uh, and, and Finnish history is a really, really nice way um, to illustrate those examples. I'm assuming you've read the, what the Rodiger book on like working towards whiteness for the Irish um, yeah. and, and, you know, same with Italians. Right, you know. exactly the groups I was thinking of, yeah. yeah. So it's and obviously it's not because then even within Italians you have the Southern Italian, the Northern Italian, you know, and it's it's it's, it's just a game, right? Because people are trying not to be pushed down. I have a whole. That's kind of one of the things in my book that I'm talking about. Like it's not it's my language teaching, but you know, it's all about like this game of whiteness that people are playing, and I, like I understand it because if you're in the group and you could not be you know, black or Asian or something, because you know what happens. I understand why the group would want to do that, right? I don't have this choice, <laughs> but certain groups certainly do. And uh, it's sort of interesting to see this the same thing happen in, you know, the jobs are different. The industries that they tended to work in are different than, you know, Italians or Irish folks, which is often dependent on where they landed, right? But um, to, like, for, it's just, I think people listening to this, unless they know, are probably going to be surprised to hear that that was the case even with, with, with Finns, right? Because as you said, as I was sort of joking about, but not really like the way I, I if I had to picture someone from Finland, you know, it, it would be that. Or the, the handful aside from, from you that I've met actually do look like that. So it's only like three people, but like, you know, um, and it's just sort of interesting to think that that was a project you know, and then when you mentioned the sort of the indigenous people, there was that whole controversy with, with the Frozen sequel about how they were sort of erasing the Sami people or they were pretending that the indigenous people were actually. Yeah, it was a whole thing um, because I think there's this really simplistic assumption that the farther north you like everyone in the north is white because they're in the north. So they're all white. Right. Um and, and and white, I mean, both in skin tone and the way we think of whiteness in all the other ways. Right? They're north and they're white. That's it. Uh, but as you say, like, you know, Mongolia is pretty far north. And I don't, people, people don't really think of them as white. So uh, it's, it's and, and like Japan goes pretty far north too. But like, I understand because the center of, you know, the, the forced center of thought for hundreds of years was Europe. And so they're, and some of it's just like a Gulf Stream thing that people physically can live farther north in Europe than other places. Uh, and anyway, I'm just battling that. But anyway, the point is to see to see that this happens. It always happens. Uh, I want I can't think of a group that could be considered white now that hasn't gone through this process. You know, right. that's just what always happens. Um, and I think it. it um, I wonder now if there's any groups left that can just get their way in because of, because of the international, you know, the fact internet and everything. I, I don't I, I don't know if that process can happen in the same way now. Like I think I think at this point the people might be in or they're not in. Like that might they might have it might have happened by now because of the the fact that people physically move around much more easily. So yeah. that you know, and then when I'm thinking about from like an American or Canadian perspective or something like that or a British perspective, um, like. I think that, you know, you all made it in, <laughs> you made it in, and, uh, and that's it then. I mean, just the, the, the just general perception of whiteness there. So then when you were sort of examining that in your piece that I, when I first read um, in the, what, summer 2020? I don't know when it was. The one that you wrote about with whiteness and teaching in, in Finland. Yeah. Yeah. My own self, but yeah. Yeah. So what were you observing there in, in sort of thinking about how sort of whiteness played out in your own role as a, a teacher educator. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so uh, to give a little bit of context, so I, I do research in a school for uh, adults with refugee experience who did not have the opportunity to 
attend school or attend school for a longer uninterrupted period of time in their life. So many of them come to Finland as refugees and um, learn to read and write for the first time uh, in their lives or learn to uh, learn the Roman alphabet in the for the first time in their lives. Uh, but that doesn't that well at the same time being maybe speaking four or five languages or eight or ten, right? So um, uh, literacy and, and, and multilingualism don't always align. So I work with these people and um, racialization and race, race stuff and racism and um, racial categories are a big topic there. Um, mostly these uh, adults, my participants, come from Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria and Russia also. Um, but really like all over the globe, I must say. And um, and so I, I, I've been in this school for, for a couple of years now, and uh, I was asked to teach a class. Uh, I think it was that one of the English teachers um, was um, couldn't do it, and I, I was really happy to do it, so I did. Um, and I was thinking, so my idea was to have this class about um, you know, linguistic linguistic justice and linguistic ownership and kind of try and um, start a discussion about who owns English and we all do and it's not like we are we, we need to move away from native speaker ideals and so that was kind of my intention um, kind of to laugh about my my blue-eyedness here <laughs> and um, um, uh, what I observed there was that, uh, so I, I understand this piece, I understand whiteness as discourses that operate in the classroom and school environment, right? And so, um, so for example, the ways I ask students to structure arguments, to structure opinions, to the ways I reframe their experiences when they talk to me about the role of English in their lives, and I try to, I appropriated their stories for my uh, purposes as a teacher, as a scholar, as a, as a white person, um, I think that uh, that would fall under what maybe Flores and Rosen call the white listening subject. So I really, uh, I, uh, like on analyzing these discourses, it was really very obvious that whiteness is, is not a racial category. It's, it's how the power operates along uh, so many different lines and um, and that are not that um, are not uh, not necessarily uh, they don't hinge on skin color but on so many other things too but they are connected to where you come from and how you speak and what your uh, status is in the moment and what histories you bring with you and in the end they are connected to larger colonial histories and what education has meant in our world and, and in our context. And, and, and so, yeah, I'm kind of trying to uh, do this uh, with the data from one particular lesson. So <laughs> big topics all <laughs> coming together in a very short amount. Well, that's kind of what but, my dissertation yeah, is like. Um, Sorry. No, I'm saying my dissertation is like I designed a class and I interviewed people who took the class. So. Um, yeah. So, yeah. or some of the people who took the class. Um, so, because, I, I, and I found that pretty interesting to sort of reflect on, because um, I don't know what the best way to, what word to use. And in the in the book, I call whiteness a pyramid scheme. Um, but <laughs> it's uh, because, you know, everyone's trying to get to the top, but nobody's really winning. Um, and, you know, it only exists the same way, like a multi-level marketing thing where, you only win if you get more people than your downline, you know, because the product is worthless. But if you convince other people that it's worthwhile, then they, you know, I don't want to give away the whole book, though. But um, it's because it's, 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 it's a relational concept, right? It's not just a thing, you know? Um, I think that other racializations became much more real to me because there's an identity there, there's a solidarity you can build there, you know? Um, I think that although they made up blackness, I think existing within it is still something that can be valuable 
and doesn't you don't need whiteness for blackness to, to be something that you can sort of live with it. But like, what is whiteness without things that it's better than? You know, it's like the, the article that um, Leonardo and I can't remember the other author, uh, but uh, about smartness. And it's like, what is being smart without people who were less smart? It's, it's not just a thing, right? It reminds me sort of, um, and I was thinking about this like an hour ago when I was thinking about what I was going to say. Uh, and it's sort of, there are like, you know, stereotypes of, of, of accents, right? And I would say that a lot of Western and Northern European accents are not accents that are stereotyped as being associated with the lack of intelligence, right? Um, but, so even if you have one of those accents um, and are therefore not, like, it's often sometimes a bonus in the sense that, like, you'll get to a university setting and they'll be like, oh, the scholar from this place, so that's impressive, right? Um, whereas if you were from a certain place, it would be seen as, oh, we don't understand what they're saying, even if you could understand the people equally. However, even a positive assumption has a negative implication because if you're saying that this person is, is more qualified or more valuable because of this aspect, then there's going to be a group of people who are less valuable because of it. You see what I'm saying? So um, it, it, in the same way that like Finland has perfect education and so forth means that some place doesn't. <laughs> like, so, so what's the opposite? Because this is kind of a, a, you know, the way we compete means it's kind of a zero-sum thing. So someone's losing if they're winning. Um, yeah, exactly. And that's that's exactly the point. I think that's why when something is constructed, whether it's race or gender or, or, or wealth or whatever it is that's being constructed, or in the Finnish context, maybe educational excellence, right? That's also a construct. That is really worth turning your turning your eyes the other way and looking. Okay, what's being constructed as the what's being co-constructed as the, the opposite? What is it not? And I think that's a really, that's what we are often missing. So yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that one of the reasons that I it's weird because I feel like this is not a topic. I haven't been to that many parties in the last two years, obviously. But once I'm in some, and I'm going to a couple of conferences later this year, so there'll be some discussions, social things happening. And like, so the point is I haven't had a chance to do what I'm about to say yet. But like, when people ask me what I study, like, I pretty much, I study white people, right? Like, it's kind of what, that's kind of what my, my research focus is. But it's not white people, it's sort of how, it's more specifically, it's how white people who are choosing to question whiteness move through their careers accordingly, specifically educators, because I had an edu getting an education degree and kind of had to focus on educators, but like the, the profession isn't super important to me. Um, and I think it's interesting because like, you know, it is not a biological fact, right? It's just something, it's a series of lessons you're taught and you can reject lessons. Okay, but then what happens? Right? You can reject them in your head, you don't believe it, but now what are you gonna do? Like actually what? Like literally what did they and so that's what the dissertation is about, like what did they actually do after they supposedly rejected the investments? Um and I think it's interesting because like, you know, a lot of people will say, and it's not untrue, that we should hire more teachers of color in the United States, right? And we should do what we can to ensure that they are supported and retained. Okay. But what are we going to do about the 78% of teachers that are white? <laughs> like, they're not going anywhere. Some of them are, but like, they're not going anywhere anytime soon. So it's like, what do we actually do? How do we get them? And here's a question I have for almost everybody, and I don't think you have an answer, just in the sense that nobody has an answer because it's a broad question. But it's like, how do you get someone to be open to starting that search to, to question these things? I know how to get people from... They started to question things. I know how to get them from 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 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0 to 4.0, but I have no idea how to get people. And you can talk about the Finnish context. You can talk about just language teaching context. How to get people from zero to one? You know, because I don't think I'm not the person to get people from zero to one. I don't have the patience for that. I can get them from one to two to three to four to five. 
Like, I don't know how to get people from, from just off the mat. You know, and I'm not talking about like hateful people. I'm just talking about color based people who have no interest in trying to do things differently at first, you know? Yeah, that's kind of the million dollar question, right? So, um, a few things that I have found useful, and of course, nothing works for everybody, but I think actually uh, looking at uh, taking a really hard look at history is really helpful. Like I said earlier, whiteness is not a given thing, and it has never been, not even in Finland, that is often perceived as this ultimately ultimate white space, which is it's not, right? Or if you believe that, you have to erase a lot of things into a lot of whiteness. But, um, but still looking at how, white, how the Finnish whiteness was constructed, and it's actually quite recent development, like that should give us something to think about. So if that is the case, that whiteness is actually something that is um, that is being made and can also be undone. So so then there's already a, a nice segue into um, anti-racist work, right? And then I think uh, what else is happening in Finland slowly, but it is uh, a very tangible sign of uh, some new thinking happening, is that uh, Finland is kind of, um, some Finnish scholars are talking more about Finnish involvement in colonial processes. So um, you can't get away with the idea that, well, we have any colonies, so we are not the colonially innocent, right? So that's not going to fly anymore. There's a lot of work being done that shows that we, we were very much involved in, in the operations themselves, in the discourses, in the, in the mechanisms, and are still to this day um, reproducing them. So uh, again, history teaches us that this exists and this is real. So, so let's just look at this a bit more closely. And then the other thing that I think we are also unpacking a bit is this uh, Finland as this homogeneous nation. Especially education, the discourse exists that in Finland education works so nicely because their classrooms or the schools are just not that diverse. And that's something that makes me always be like, how can I say that nicely? Like it makes my toenails roll up a bit because it's just not true. And uh, there's actually a really nice book uh, uh, called Undoing uh, Homogeneity in the northern region or something like that. I think that's the title. Uh, but Suvi Kestinen and, and, and colleagues have written about this, for example. There's a nice podcast by Mika Terman also, uh, since people maybe like podcasts um, about, um, about that topic. So uh, this has never been a homogeneous country, and it's not now either. And so if we think critically about what history has taught us about homogeneity and about how whiteness has always been constructed and how we are colonially not innocent, if we put all these million puzzle pieces together, I think it would be really difficult not to get from what you mean by from zero to one. Like I think you really have to uh, ignore and erase a lot of things and turn away from a lot of things to then not see that we have to talk about race and we have to talk about whiteness and we have to um, be more critical of our own educational system, our own national policies and so Well, I mean, I think that, you know, there's all this backlash against certain things, but I feel like they... It's obviously bad that they're trying to stop people from learning history, but they've kind of always tried to stop people from learning history, so it's not really new. And also, these kids have the internet, so like, it's not it's not gonna work. <laughs> like, it'll work in the classroom itself, where they probably weren't learning that much anyway about certain things. But like, you know, I could go and 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 listen to a Finnish perspective right now. Right, I could go and let's do a German. I could go let's do a German. I mean, obviously, if, if I understand the language, but I mean, depending on what's being used. But like, you know, like, to me, to me, the biggest thing is, is like I said, curiosity and incuriosity. Right, and if you're just like incurious, I don't know how to make someone who's incurious curious. But I do think once you are curious, you know, there's a, a pass that out for you. You know, and to me, every child is curious. So I guess the question is, how do people get to a point where they become incurious? And 
and I, I, which is, this is a philosophical question that doesn't have a whole lot to do with whiteness. But, uh, you know, I think that that is really the, the crux of it because what must happen, and there's probably research on this, but I don't know what the question is, so I don't know what to search when I look at research. But, like, what must happen is, I think, and I didn't think this about whiteness, but it's probably true about class, and it's probably true about gender, and, and then other things, is that if, if, I think that there's an, uh, um, underlying fear uh, when you are really, really wrapped up in your limited identity, like a constructed identity, and your fear is that, like, if I let go of this, what do I have? Right? If you've got nothing, you feel you feel as though you have nothing. Now, I don't think they have nothing, but I think that you know, and it, it reminds me of the way that there's this subclass of. EFL people on Twitter who just show up and get mad whenever people talk about critical stuff. Uh, and I'm just like, and I wrote about this in my book and I talk about like, these are people who like sympathetically, they're probably being exploited by their employ employers, right? Because if your only qualification is that you're a white guy, then we better, we better not point out that that's true because what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it's true also not just in terms of your profession but in terms of, of race in terms of gender like if you're the only thing you believe is that men are like this and I have to be like this and then if people are like what if it's this other way and you're like I, 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 I don't know you know and, and, and it's sad in a way because of all the harm it leads to I can understand it it's just that they don't want to listen to me so you know <laughs> yeah I think, I mean, when it comes to people who um, uh, intentionally and, and uh, strategically uh, reject um, the things like history or research or, or uh, critical thinking, despite all the evidence, I think then probably adding more evidence won't do anything, right? Because then it's maybe more about something else. And as you said, then it's about like, the fear of losing something, the fear of losing privilege and power and status, and 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 so that's a different story. I do think that, that especially when we talk about teachers, teacher educators, scholars, um, there is a lot of people who are um, not hardcore deniers or rejectors of uh, any race talk, uh, but have not had to think about it, have had an opportunity to learn about it, have cared about it, are not sure where they stand, are afraid of making a mistake. Um, and so I think there is a really big group that we can work with really, really well. And I think I'm part of that group too. Like I'm learning this stuff all the time and also failing a lot. So I think there's a really big group that we can work with. Uh, and, and then we can still, while we do this, we still can think can still think about like what how how we um, can also address people who are completely oppositional and completely rejecting all that stuff. It, um, you know, yeah. I think that as you say, I, I do believe that there's a giant group of people who are just sort of like going along to get along. They're like, this is the way I know, and I'm just going to keep doing it. You know, um, which I understand in some ways. They might stressful like they're like, I don't just leave me alone. Let me do what I think. But it's also like people will say that like this work is hard and it is, but I feel like it's not hard in the way that they think it is. Like it's a different kind of hard. It's hard because it's not going to end. Like that's what's hard about it. It's hard because it's uncomfortable, right? But like it, it, to me, it's like building a new habit. It's like, yeah, the first six weeks or whatever where you're just getting used to it, of course it's impossible. Because it's just you're like you're doing something you haven't done before. Um, but once you once it becomes a habit, it's for me whether whether it's you know looking squarely at whiteness and that sort of thing. Like at this point, it's hard for me not to do it. Like I have sometimes I'll be like I just can't I can't think about this. I'm just gonna watch Law and Order. I know the problems. Like I just want to watch the TV. Like I just just I don't care. Like my brain is like you know that's really messed up. Look, stop. Just stop it. I just want to watch the. T I want to hear the music. I just want to watch the TV. You know, I gotta do things like that, right? But like, it, it, it's to me, it's similar to like this is completely less 
lower stakes thing, but like it stresses me out to be late. So like I've, I've made it to, the, I used to be late a lot when I was younger and I, I made it to the point where I get stressed out if I'm late. So now I'm never late. Right. Uh, and it's similar to, to, to that in terms of thinking about these things. Like some people really just haven't been trained in it. And, and, and I'm, that's why a, a big thing is getting to people when they're being trained to be educators, you know, like all, and I said this, I say this a lot, but all of this stuff we're, we're backfilling. Like we're all like, the, the, the construction pit is, is just, and people are just putting, like, you know, we're, we're years late on this. Every single person, and it's not like it was that many people, but every single person I interviewed for my dissertation, these are all white educators. They're all trying now, right? And, like, they're doing actual stuff. They're not just, like, posting black squares, right? Every single one of them didn't think about this at all. Like, they all thought, they all were like, I'm not, you know, that kind of thing. But they didn't think about it deeply until they were adults, because they, they didn't have to. And they've been doing this. They're trying now, right? Like they're, they're doing work. And I'm not saying they're automatically heroic or something. Or I'm not saying that's true of you or me. Um, but like, you know, literally nobody taught them until someone did. And they're all educators. And one of the things that's hard, and I think this is true of all the people we're talking about, is that like when I learned about racial linguistic ideologies, when I learned about the white perceiver, I looked back at my career and I was like, oh, I fucked all these people up. <laughs> I was like, I can't undo it. I screwed up for years. I was a, a really engaging classroom presence and I cared about my students, but I still was wrapped up in ideologies that made them lesser. And you can't undo it. You can't go back. Right. And even when you learn the stuff, you're still going to screw up. At least you're aware you're screwing up. But like, I feel a part, a big part of things that come through my book is me looking back on my first several years as a language teacher and knowing like, I really did a lot of stuff wrong. Not people will think, Oh, you taught the grammar wrong. I'm like, not really. I was pretty good at that. But like the way that I thought of my students. And I think there are people who once they get a look outside of the matrix or whatever you want to call it, they're just like, Oh no. I'd have to, I'd have to feel bad about everything I did. And it's like, yeah, that's what's hard about it. That's the hard part, you know? And uh, I don't know, there's no, there's no getting over that. You just have to do yeah, that. But, but now what you're saying, that makes me really think, because that's how I felt when I wrote that piece, that self-study. And I've always thought that maybe this is also our, our job as, as, as educators, as, as teacher educators to um, find a way to, like when I did that self-study, what I really wanted to do is have a class where everyone does a self-study on their own whiteness discourses in class, right? I think that would be like <laughs> so interesting. I and did that. Sorry. Everybody fails all the time and we're learning together, right? And so failing has to become more of an okay thing to do. Yeah, though I did that actually. I didn't write, it's in the book. Um, and it's, oh my God. It, yeah, it's not, you know, but it's about, well, I didn't put their autobiographies in it. I said that I did it in the class and I put the syllabus in there so people can use it if they want to, but they have to buy the book first. And then I'm like, fine, I made my money. But um, like the first thing that happens in my class between sessions one and two is they have to go and think about their whiteness and tell me how they got to this point. They have to go and think about it specifically, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, they're all talking about the ways they fell short and how they got to this point. And, you know, I think that the literature, the literature on white educators, especially white educators, but white people in, in general, but specifically educators grappling with whiteness, you know, they'll, they'll have a line in there about how they did things wrong, which is fine. I'm not blaming these people and I don't know what the journal editors said. So, you know, whatever. But like, there's, there's this image that especially majoritized people where we're talking about race or gender or class or whatever, that the ones who are doing things right, we only hear about them after the fact. You know, we hear about them when they did a big heroic thing, when they made this, this thing happen and changed this policy or whatever. And we never hear about how they were just, and I, and I, I don't know why I assume this, 
But I assumed even when I started teaching these classes that some of them would say, well, my father, you know, taught me anti-racist lessons when I was a kid. And so I've been doing it my whole life. Nobody. I mean, clearly somebody's like that, but nobody who took my class with that. Now, maybe they wouldn't need to take my class if they were like that. But, um, you know, they don't people don't come out fully formed and ready to challenge things that are literally the master narrative that's around them. This is what everyone is taught. So you really have to, to get some extra knowledge to move away from it. And like I can speak only for the United States, but I can see that, you know, for example, the like educational excellence is part of the, the master narrative in Finland. Right. We as a country, you, I mean, but you're, the narrative is we as a country have educational excellence. Right. And if you want to question that, like there are some people who believe so strongly in the master narrative as the master narrative is supposed to make you believe in it. That to reject that is to just leave you totally on the outside of, of you know, polite thought in a lot of ways. Um, and, and that's not even doing anything wrong. You're just making a decision in your head to, to think of things differently. So, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it's a huge effort to pull away from that. But then I'm also reminded of what you said earlier about your comparison of whiteness with the pyramid scheme. And I think... Just like a pyramid scheme, whiteness is not sustainable, right? Because like you can't play a pyramid scheme, and like there is no, there's no way to sustain it. It's impossible. It has to crash at some point, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And same with whiteness. It's yeah, cool. it's not sustainable. It's the the. I think of it like um, I was gonna. You know, before I ended up writing a book, which I didn't expect it to be a language teaching book. It's not like a linguistics book. Like, there's not a lot of, like, that stuff in there. It's more about the ideologies in the industry. But um, I thought I was just going to write a book more about whiteness in general. And I still may do that. But I forget. I had this great title and I can't remember. Um, oh, that's it. It was, in the United States at least, you know, the Department of the city or whatever will go around and they'll say that this building is not safe to be in. They'll put a sign on, you know, put a sign on it and the sign says structurally unsound. And I wanted to write a book called structurally unsound about like the, the structure of whiteness, right? And, and that could have, and the cover image could have been a picture of building and, you know, you get what I'm saying. It would have been very clever. I still may do this, but, uh, you know, I had all these notes about it and I didn't include any of them in my book, which is too bad. But anyway, uh, because like you said, it's, it's unsustainable. Like the only problem is as it falls apart, and I think it's starting to fall apart, which is why they're so mad about it. It's just, it's slow. <laughs> so it's not going to fall apart all of a sudden because it was slow to be built and it's going to be slow to be unbuilt. It would be great if you could just take a wrecking ball to it, but people aren't ready for that. So, you know, you're getting a lot of people who are thinking of these things differently and it's messy and something. And then to me, the desire for neatness is part of upholding the system. You know, things need to be neat and pristine. And if it, and so when you're challenging these things, it's deliberately messy. And then they say, well, they'll, they won't even engage with your ideas. They'll just say, well, it's messy. So I don't like it. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah. that's, that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. We like neat things, right? I was working on an article with with our mutual friend, and you know, we were talking about how um, they wanted us to put a big list in at the end about what to do. We we're like, no, it's not. This you did you read the article? There's no, we can't make a list in this article. But you know, um, <laughs> because it's it like I understand like. The, the concept of listing something isn't necessarily a problem. It's just that they wanted us to list solutions, like like one, two, three, four, yeah, five, yeah. you know. Like, and that's also, sorry. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. Totally. I, I, I think so. There's a few things that are connected to why this is so hard, apart from, of course, the uh, complete uh, shift that you have to go through. But that's exactly how you said we like things clean and we like some structures and we like to think, uh, we like things that are ethical. But I feel like this this uh, need that is sometimes spread, expressed in teacher educational context or educational context for something applicable, something hands-on, something that I can, uh, I can do it tomorrow in my classroom. That doesn't always work because sometimes you have a change of 
ideology a change in your in your world view it takes time and it's it's not linear and it's it's uh it's a weird process so we have to also uh move away from this idea that teaching is always planned it's always pristine as you said it's always structured and it always is tangible and it always has a clear outcome that is measurable and identifiable immediately and it's like but learning doesn't work like that right and and learning about race doesn't work like that so so we have to rethink a lot of things if we want to really start the conversation i think that that is a great place to come to a close. So do you have any sort of final thoughts on like language, whiteness and, and, and Finland and just sort of the way it's, you know, where maybe where you'd like to see the conversation continue to go over there? Um, my final word would maybe be uh, Finland is not the education model that it's made out to be. Happy to uh, talk about this more or point people to resources if needed. Um, but I think we are in a really good place, starting to be in a good place with research beginning and education beginning to see things really critically. And I'd like to see a lot more of that. Uh, but I'm also, I'm also sort of hopeful. I think something's spoiling and I think that's good. So yes, so thank you Justin for this invitation. Yeah, well, I'm glad you were able to be here because there's a lot of, you know, it's, 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 um, even people who want to push against these things will still have a really narrow mindset, not on purpose, but because they don't, they haven't, like, I haven't spent time with a lot of, like, Finnish scholarship, like, I've read yours, but it's not all about Finland, right? So, you know, why would, and, and, and like, who has the time to read every place, you know? Right. So, um, it's, it's good to hear it directly from you and, um. Hopefully I continue my magical mystery tour around the world with different aspects of whiteness. <laughs>